Welcome to Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This is class number seven. We continue topic number two that the Book of Mormon was written for our day. In this class, we address the war chapters. Why are there war chapters in the Book of Mormon? What are we to learn from the war chapters? And what are we supposed to learn specifically from Amalekiah as a type of Lucifer? So back to topic number two. Topic number one was Jesus in the Book of Mormon. We spend a whole lifetime there. Topic number two is that the Book of Mormon was written for our day. It wasn't written for anyone else. No one had the gold plates that Mormon was producing but us. So everything in them was for our circumstances, our challenges, and the, th the challenges that we face. So in every point, you should pause and say, why did Mormon include this? That's how I read the Book of Mormon. Why did Mormon include this? What modern challenge did he think that this would solve? So last week, we kind of took a look at the Book of Mosiah and that incredible idea of in the latter days, one of the greatest concerns the Savior has is that you're not going to be able to tell the difference between wheat and tare. So as you've thought about this week, any insights? How have you come to the conclusion? Maybe what did conference tell you? What have you found in the Book of Mormon that will help you distinguish between wheat and tare? That was a powerful message. So any thoughts before we move on? Ed of Eller Ballard, when he was uh, uh, prophesying and teaching us, uh, he hit really hard on Joseph Smith and the Restoration. I feel like he did that last conference too. Yeah. And I like how he's not just like self-consciously thinking, at least on the surface, saying like, oh, I did this last time. I'm not going to do it again. But he said that he, he still testified boldly. And the, the thought went through my mind, and surely there's a spirit that said, uh, even if you forgot everything, like he had complete amnesia, he would never stop testifying Joseph Smith. In the book. Yeah. And yet... If there's a wheat that the world sees as tear, it's Joseph Smith. He is being portrayed as a tear everywhere you look. So are you able to distinguish wheat and tear? Are you pushing out the tears? Are you pushing out the wheat because you see it as tears? Very common in our society. So let's move on. Let's jump to Alma. I'm going to try and keep these fairly in sequential order. What portion of Alma is specifically written for our day? So we're going to talk, start tonight the war chapters. And many people, if you don't look at the war chapters with the eye of what do they have to do with our day, so many people are puzzled. Why are there war chapters? And so many war chapters in the book of Alma. And it drags on and on. So let's see the war chapters for what they are symbolically. Turn with me to 46, Alma 46, to the beginning of these war chapters. We'll bring it up. Let me see if I can bring it up here. Alma chapter 46, let me do this version. Let me see if you can just see the symbolism. How does this war begin? <clears throat> All right, so we begin by a man named uh, Amalekiah. A man named Amalekiah who was desirous to be king. Already I'm starting to see some connections. A man among the Nephites who wants to be king. 
And the reason he wants to be king is because he and others are seeking for power. Other people were following him because they were led by the flatteries of Amalekiah. Um, look at verse 10. We see that Amalekiah, because he was a man of cunning evil and many flatteries, led away the hearts of many people to do wickedly. Now, this is what's intriguing. Had Amalekiah been chosen as king, what does verse 10 say would have been the result? It would have destroyed the? Keep going. The foundation of liberty. That kind of sounds like agency, right? A man who wants to be king is very flattering, seeking for power, isn't chosen as king, and when he isn't chosen as king, gathers his forces, rebels against those who didn't choose him. And the whole point is, had he been chosen as king, it would have threatened the very foundation of liberty. Is that ringing a bell? I mean, how clear is that? So let me introduce a concept that we sometimes don't consider. The brilliance of the Book of Mormon is not only does it portray Christ and how to come to Christ, but the Book of Mormon exposes the enemies. Tonight we're going to talk about a type of Lucifer. If we're going to really understand how to win this war, we need to understand the strategy, the thinking of Lucifer. So not only does the Book of Mormon show us Jesus, it shows us the enemies. And Amalekiah is a case study on how Satan is going to try and deceive you. The war chapters are a continuation of the war that began in heaven. Now here's what's interesting. Every other dispensation that has existed, except for maybe Enoch, depending on how you want to clarify that, every other dispensation has lost that war. We cannot. We cannot. This dispensation cannot fall into apostasy. We must issue, issue in the second coming. If we don't do it, the Lord will find another people who will. Because we cannot fall into apostasy. Therefore, of all dispensations who have ever existed, who has to win the war against Lucifer? We do. And so we have the blueprints. We have in the, in the war chapters of the Book of Mormon exactly how to win it. We have a case study on how Satan attacks and how he destroys. And we also come to understand the mistakes. So this war should have been over in one battle. They attack the city of Noah and they get slaughtered. And Noah was the weakest city. So where in the world are they going to have success? The war should have been over in one battle. Why wasn't it? Because the Nephites opened the front door. They made two mistakes. And they are the same two mistakes we're making today. Now that'll be next week's class. But tonight, let's take a look at one of the great lessons of the Book of Mormon. And it's a little negative. If I spit a few times and get and curse his name, you'll understand. I can't say Amalekiah without spitting. Because I have learned how closely his approach is to Lucifer's, and I've watched him destroy way too many people that I love. But one of the great lessons of the Book of Mormon is to watch how Amalekiah gained power. If you want to know how Satan is going to do it in your life or in the lives of people you love, here is the case study.
Now, let's suppose I were to go in two weeks before Amalekiah shows up. I'm going to go to the Lamanite nation two weeks before Amalekiah shows up. And I'm going to gather the army. And I say to the army, in a few weeks, you will have an ex-Nephite commander. You will be led by an ex-Nephite. And you will all think it's a good idea. What would the Lamanite army say to me? What would they say if I suggested that they would be led by an ex-Nephite? They would say, not on your life. We will never let that happen. If I were to say that to the whole Lamanite nation, you're going to choose him as your king. You will choose an ex-Nephite as your king. What would the Lamanite nation say to me? Not a chance. If I were to say to the queen, you're going to marry him. You're going to marry him. What would the queen say? Not a chance. And yet he does all of those. And by the same token, if I were to take the life of someone who, say, became unworthy to go on a mission, could I go back in time and find a point where if I said, you're going to be unworthy to serve a mission, they would say the same thing to me? Not a chance. Are there people who have left the church who, if I had said to them at some point in their life, you're going to leave the church, they would say, not a chance. Do you see where I'm going with that? It's the same strategy. How does he do it? How does Lucifer get his little fingers around our hearts? Because whatever image you've ever had about Satan, you know, the devil whispering temptations in your ear. No, that doesn't work. What works is to slowly get his tentacles around your heart and you trust him. So how does it happen? Let's watch. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to, I'm going to imagine this little social totem pole. Here's my little totem pole that represents the social hierarchy of the Lamanite nation. So where would they put Nephites that show up on that list? Every single time a Nephite shows up in the land of the Lamanites, what do they do? They throw him in prison, okay? Bottom of the list. So he's going to start as bottom of the barrel. He is the least liked Lamanite. Now watch him climb that totem pole. It is one of the most fascinating studies of how Satan operates. Turn with me to Alma chapter 47. I think Alma chapter 47 might be one of the greatest gifts of the Book of Mormon in a negative sense because it exposes how it happens. Ready? So verse 1, Amalekiah comes in and he begins to do what? He stirs them up to anger. May I suggest that's one of the ways it begins. He stirs you up to anger. Anger against God, anger against prophets, anger against the church, anger against doctrines. He stirs them up to anger to the point where he convinces them to go against the Nephites to battle. 
Now, verse 2, what, what's just happened? Remember, Amal- remember um, Zarahemna, the scalp? Remember they had to sign an oath to not return? So what are the chances the Lamanite army is going to be excited about returning to battle against the Nephites? No way. But he stirred up the people to convince them to go attack the Nephites. So the more part of the army, verse 2, would not... And now it came to pass that the king was wroth because of their disobedience. Therefore, he gave Amalekiah command that that part of his army would, uh, that was obedient. So he stirs them up. You got the majority of the army that won't. Amalekiah says, we'll go turn them around. You put me in charge of the good, you put me in charge of the people that will, and we'll go turn them around. And the king says, that's a great idea. The king who's going to die at his sword in just a few days said, that's a good idea. I'll put you in charge of half the army. And now he just took a notch up, right? He went from a nobody, and what is he now? Commander of part of the army. How do you do that? So... Here's the story. The people, the, the, the Lamanite warriors who will not go to battle are led by, the, um, by a man by the name of Lahontai. One of the great lessons, destined to be one of the saddest stories of the Book of Mormon and the great lesson of the Book of Mormon, they are led by Lahontai. Now Lahontai gathers them and takes them to the top of a mountain, which is very symbolic. So let me see if I draw this. Here is a mountain, and at the very top is Lahontai. And as long as Lahontai stays on top of that mountain, he is safe. Amalekiah comes, and he, he stations himself at the bottom of the mountain. And then he sends up invitation number one, verse 10. What is invitation number one? He might as well go for the gusto, right? Satan always goes for the gusto. He's going to try. What's invitation number one? Come Come all the way down. Can I get you to come all the way down? Will you go all the way down from the mountain? Now, are there some Latter-day Saints who say, yeah, I'll go all the way down? There are. But for the most of us, what do we say at the invitation of coming all the way down? No way. He durst not, verse 11, he durst not go down to the foot of the mountain. Three times comes the invitation. Will you come all the way down? Now think about your youth. Think about those days where Satan was bold enough to come up to you and say, will you go all the way to sin? No, I won't. Oh, you won't? Okay. Now tell me what he does. Verse 12. It came to pass that when Amalekiah found, when Satan found, when Lucifer found out that the Latter-day Saints would not come all the way down to the foot of the mountain, he went up into the mountain nearly to Lahontai's camp. So what's the next invitation? If you won't come all the way, Will you come down a little? And what does he say? Look at verse 12. 
bring your guards. It's okay. You are safe to come down a little. That's how he does it. You don't have to come all the way down. Will you just come down a little and bring your guards? He makes you feel safe at coming down a little. Can I get you to break all the mission rules? No. Okay. Well, how about just 9.30? You don't have to stay out. You, you don't have to come in at 9.30. Can I get you to break one rule, the dumbest rule? Would you do that? And that's how it starts. It starts at that moment with the invitation to come down and to feel safe coming down. One of the saddest verses in all the Book of Mormon is verse 13. It came to pass that when Lahontai had come down, he came down a little. Now, Malachi has a deal for him, right? As soon as you come down a little, Satan has a deal for you. And the deal is, hey, I got a great idea. You don't want to go to war against the Lamanites, the Nephites? Okay, great. You come down and you surround us in the middle of the night and we'll surrender. We'll surrender to you and you'll be in charge. And if you don't want to go to war against the Nephites, we won't. You'll be in charge, big guy. And all I ask is what? Verse 11 or verse 13, all I ask is that make me second in command. And now Lahontai finds himself doing what? Hey, this is a great idea. He comes down to the one place he vowed he wouldn't go, thinking it's a great idea, right? That's what he does. He gets you to come down. And then he has a deal for you. And if you're not careful, you end up at the bottom of the mountain thinking it's a good idea. The one place you vowed you would not go. Now, what happens to Lahontai? Verse 18 is so symbolic. Tell me what happens to Lahontai. Poisoned by degrees. Let's talk about that. Why would you poison him by degrees? Why would you put the first drop of poison in? Why not just dump the whole bottle? I mean, aren't you better off just dumping the whole bottle of poison in and just killing him? No, because what does the human body do to a whole bottle of poison? Just like, I'm not coming all the way down. The, bottle, the body would throw up a whole bottle of poison. So what's the purpose of the first drop of poison? To fool the body into thinking that it's... Do you see the symbolism? That's exactly what happened to Lahontai on the mountain. You put the first drop of poison in so he doesn't throw it up. His body accepts it. And that's how Satan does it. He accepts it just a little bit. You accept it. Now, would you have a moment with yourself and would you examine your life and ask if there has recently been, or at any point in your life, 
a time where you came down a little. You didn't break all the rules. You just broke one of them. And you felt like it wasn't a big deal if you did. And that's how he does it. That is the enemy. Just come down a little. Just drink this poison that has one drop in it. And then the next night it was two drops. Because if you don't throw up one, it's not that far a stretch to drink two and then three. And then pretty soon you have swallowed enough to kill you. That is how he did it. Now, once Lahontai is dead, who's going to be in charge? So he went from commander of part to second in command of all, and now commander of the entire army. And who thinks it's a good idea? They do. He has them convinced that this is a good idea. Now there is just one, I just, verse 20, you gotta look at the parentheses. Can you just picture this? Just picture this. So verse 19, the Lamanites appointed Amalekiah to be their leader and their chief commander. It came to pass that Amalekiah marched with his armies. Do you see the parentheses? What does it say? For he had gained his desires. Tell me what the looks on his face. Tell me the look on his face. Smug satisfaction, right? It's the same look Satan gives me every time he pulls one of my students away. or someone I love. He looks at me with that same smug look. I got him. You didn't think I'd get him. And I got him. I just hate that look. It's that come down a little and bring your guards. Now, just a couple contours. Let me, let, let me, let me show the counter to that. One of the reasons we love Abraham so much, I love him because of his sacrifice of Isaac. I love him because of his obeying the covenant. But can I show you the moment in Abraham's life that wins him my affection? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, Lot and Abraham are getting too big. Genesis chapter 13. All right, let's start in verse 8. Abram says to Lot, Let there be no strife between thee, I pray thee, between me and thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So what did Lot choose? Verse 10, Lot lifted, lifted up his eyes, and behold the plain of Jordan, and it was well watered. So verse 11, Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. Now, what's in the plain of Jordan? Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abraham, verse 12, dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plains. And here it starts, ready? 
he pitched his tent towards Sodom. There it is. Just come down a little. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And Moses writes, but, but Lot, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord. What are you pitching your tent towards them? Oh, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not sinning. I've come down a little and I've brought my guards with me. I'm safe. Now, next chapter in verse 12, where is he? He's no longer pitching his tent towards Sodom. He... How do you go from pitching your tent to living in it? What was step two? Maybe you ride your horse over there and peek in a few windows. Maybe you get a hotel room for a night. Rent a room. And pretty soon you've bought a house in Sodom. See, that's the tactic. Lot dwells in Sodom. Well, there are five kings who conquer Sodom. And Abraham is going to go conquer the five kings. That tells you something about Abraham. Abraham conquered the five kings that conquered the cities of the plain. So Abraham is coming back with the goods. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother-in-law and his goods and the women. And out come two kings to meet him. One king is, this is where he meets, Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of righteousness, comes out and blesses Abraham. And Abraham pays tithes of all. Did he owe tithes of all? But he paid tithes of all. And then guess who comes out to meet Abraham? Verse 21, the king of Sodom, who ironically was not with his people. That's interesting, isn't it? So the king of Sodom comes out and says, I have a deal for you. It's always that deal. I have a deal for you. Give me the people and take the goods for yourself. Now, this is one of the great moments of all of Scripture. And this is how you defeat Lucifer. First, you understand how he's going to attack. And here's your response. Abram said unto the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. I will not take anything that is thine. I won't even let a thread's worth in. Have you found yourself using a thread's worth of the world's words? Are you willing to watch a movie if it only contains a thread's worth? Do you listen to music whose lyrics only have a thread's worth? You see how easy it is? I will not take a thread's worth. That's what made Abraham great. 
and understanding how he works is you don't have to come all the way down. You just have to come down a little. He's not asking for 0% obedience. He's asking for 98%. And that's how it starts. One more scripture. 2 Nephi chapter 26. 2 Nephi 26. This is kind of a frustrating one. Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 26. How does he do it? How does the devil do it? Verse 22. He's the work of secret combinations. And where does it start? Where does it all start? Look at the end of verse 22, 2 Nephi 26, 22. Tell me how it begins. Where does Satan's grasp on you begin? He leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord. Now, no one's worried about a flaxen cord. I can rip off a flaxen cord at any moment. I'm safe. I haven't done anything majorly wrong. It's okay. And we get comfortable with that flaxen cord. And if you're not careful, the flaxen cord becomes strong cords that bind me. Now, one more verse. What's he doing at the end of that cord? It just infuriates me. Go to Moses chapter 7, Pearl of Great Price. What is Satan doing at the end of that chain that started with a flaxen cord and has become... Moses chapter 7, Pearl of Great Price. Uh, where am I? Moses 7, 29, I think. Nope, where is it? 26. What is Satan doing at the end of the chain? He's laughing. He's got the same smug look on his face that Amalekai had, didn't he? I got him. And it started when they just took a step down. The day they drank the poison with one drop in it. That's, that's when we're the most vulnerable. Because 98% obedience isn't that much different than 97%. It's basically the same, right? And 97% is, it's basically 95%. And so on and so on. So, should we watch him do it again? Smug little bugger with his, I, I got the army. So how's he going to do it? Watch what he does. So back to Alma chapter 47. Let's watch him do it with the entire nation. Watch him deceive the entire nation. So continuing in verse 20, for he had gained the desires. Now, verse 21, the king, the king came out to meet him with his guards. How many guards did he bring out to meet Amalekiah? Two. Why only two? Why did the king only bring two? His life is threatened. But why did the king only bring two? Because he felt safe. 
My danger level is not very high. I'm only going to bring two guards. So Amalekiah bows down, stabs the king to the heart. The two guards flee, and Amalekiah blames them and acts all angry at the death of the king. Look at verse 27. This is such irritate. This just irritates me to no end. The army which pursued after them, and the army which pursued after them returned, having pursued them in vain. And thus Amalekiah, oh, sorry, 27. That's what I meant to read. It came to pass that Amalekiah commanded that his army should march forth and see what had happened to the king. And when they came to the spot and found the king lying in his gore, Amalekiah pretended to be wroth. Who killed the king? And said, whoever loved the king, let him go forth and pursue his servants that he may be slain. And so they march forth. They don't find him. They're going to march on the city. They're going to march on the city. Now, verse 30. And the army which had pursued after them returned, having pursued them in vain. And thus, Amalekiah, by his fraud, gained the hearts of the people. Just like God wins our hearts, so does Satan. If he can get you to come down a little bit, if he can manipulate your emotions and pretend, he wins our hearts. And now that the king's dead, we got the queen to deal with, right? So he marches on the city. I am going to destroy those horrible people who killed the king. And he marches on the city. And the queen says, whoa, 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 don't, don't destroy the city. There's good people here. Come talk to me. So he walks in. Now tell me how it goes. We don't get this story, but tell me, how does it play out? Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. He was such a good man. I loved him so dearly. I can't believe you've lost him. And before you know it, verse 33. Well, sorry. Verse 35. Amalekiah sought the favor of the queen and took her unto him to wife. He was acknowledged king throughout the land among all the people of the Lamanites. What they said they'd never do, they ended up doing. Because one step down. Do you see how it works? How many of you have someone you love that has been conquered by Lucifer? How many of you can go back to the one step? How many of you can go back and see the one step they took? The 99% obedience. I have an interesting story about that. I have like eight siblings and most of them are inactive. And I have a twin brother and I have a brother that's older than me. And it was interesting because they both kind of came inactive at the same time. My brother came to live with us and he'd recently gotten home from his mission um, kind of falling away a little bit, and then he started to work on Sunday because it's the only job you can find. We were on the East Coast, it's really hard to find a job that you don't work on Sunday, and so 
kind of started us out the same with my friend brother. His manager was like, can you just work three Sundays? I really need you just these three Sundays. He's like, well, okay, as long as it's just three Sundays. And then, it's okay. you know, eventually it became four Sundays. And then he just wanted to come to church every Sunday because he was working. And I saw, like, how casual they got from everything else. Because once they became casual about keeping us up, they holy, they became really casual about everything else. And now my brother doesn't even believe in God. Yeah. It's, it's sad how effective it can be in people's lives. Do you see the great lesson from the Book of Mormon? So the antidote, the antidote is never step down. Never believe that 99% obedience is okay. Never take that step down. Now, I know we have to live life and I know we have to be in us, but I can live my life and not take that step down. That's the key. Now, let's do a positive. That's kind of a negative one to watch Amalekiah be so effective at that. Let's do a positive one. Let me show you a great lesson because what's happening on the other side? Let's talk about Moroni. Let's go to chapter 48. Now, tell me what Moroni's been doing. This is such a critical lesson. If I'm going to, if I'm going to defeat Satan, tell me what Moroni is doing. First of all, I love verse 1. I think verse 1 is absolutely critical. As soon as Amalekai obtained the kingdom, he began to inspire the hearts of the Lamanites against the people. <clears throat> and thus he did inspire their hearts against the Nephites. Now let's jump down to, let's go to verse 7. While Amalekai was winning the hearts of the Lamanites, tell me what Moroni is doing in verse 7. He's preparing the minds of the people. Before he ever prepares their swords, he prepares the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord. Now tell me what he does in verse 8. He had been strengthening the armies, erecting forts and places of resort, throwing up banks of earth around about to enclose the armies. He was building walls of stone to encircle them, round about their cities and building up fortresses. Now look at verse 9. In their weakest fortifications, he did place the greatest number of men. Now, where are the Lamanites going to attack? Go to chapter 49. Tell me where the Lamanites are going to attack. Well, verse 1, where do they go first? Great lesson here. Tell me where the Lamanites attack first. Does that ring a bell? Ammoniah? That's the city they destroyed, right? The, where they, they burned the women and children. So Satan's going to come where? Satan's going to come where first? Where he's had success. Satan's going to come where he's had success. Now they've built up Amalekiah or Ammoniah. So where do they go next? Where do they go next? Let's go to verse 13. No, 14. Well, no, let's go back to 13. Moroni had fortified and had built forts of security for every city in the land round about. And specifically, look at verse 14. They attacked Noah next, which hitherto had been a weak place. 
had now by the means of Moroni become strong. Verse 15, as Noah, the city, the city of Noah had hitherto been the weakest part of the land. Therefore, the Lamanites marched there. So tell me where Satan's coming. He's coming after your weakness. If you're going to defeat Satan, you're going to need to do something very difficult to do. You're going to need to acknowledge your weakness. You're going to need to find your city of Noah. You are going to need to acknowledge where you are weak. Now, let's be honest. You can all quote it. Ether 12, 27. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Tell me what he says next. I give unto men weakness. Your weakness is a gift. God gave you a weakness. He gave me one. He gave you one. And if you're going to defeat Satan, you are going to have to find your city of Noah. You are going to have to acknowledge where you are weak. Because God gives us weakness on purpose to make us humble. Are you going to be humble enough in this battle to acknowledge that you have a weakness? We don't like weaknesses, do we? We don't like vulnerabilities. We don't like to talk about them. And we don't like to acknowledge them. But the only reason Moroni defeats Amalekiah in this first wave of the battle is because he was brave enough to acknowledge where they were weak and how to strengthen it. Can I give you two examples? Let me give you the first two elders of the church, both with weaknesses. One acknowledged it, found a way to check it, and one did not. Let's start in Doctrine and Covenants 23. Doctrine and Covenants 23, verse 1. Tell me what the Lord says to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver, you have a weakness. What was his weakness? Doctrine and Covenants 23, verse 1. You have a weakness, Oliver, and your weakness is pride. Your weakness is pride. You are vulnerable to pride. Now, that's dangerous to, uh, to put a person whose weakness is pride as the number two man. Do you see the problem? You make him the number two man, and he's got a problem with pride. Now, does Oliver check that pride? Does Oliver take the warning to heart? Does Oliver ever do anything to strengthen and acknowledge his weakness? Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated, and if you could boil it down to one word, why was ex Oliver Cowdery excommunicated? Pride. Now, go to section 24. Joseph has a weakness. What's Joseph Smith's weakness? Look at verse 9. Joseph Smith, you've got a weakness too. I give them to everyone. Every one of you, if men come unto me, I will show unto you your weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. Joseph, I've given you a weakness. What was Joseph's, one of Joseph Smith's weaknesses? Hey, in temporal things, you're not very good, Joseph. 
You're not very good in temporal things. Can I give you an example? Joseph's not good at writing stuff down. He's not very good at writing stuff down. We all know how the Aaronic priesthood was restored, right? They're praying. They go to the banks of the Sesquicahanna River. John the Baptist comes upon you, my fellow servants. I, can anyone tell me how the Melchizedek priesthood was restored? Go ahead. Tell me how the Melchizedek priesthood was restored. Tell me the story. What did Peter, James, and John say when they laid their hands upon Joseph Smith? Do we know what occurred? Yes, we know what occurred. Why don't we know anything about what happened? Because Joseph never wrote it down. And why didn't he write it down? Because he wasn't very strong in temporal things. So tell me what Joseph Smith did. From the day the church is organized, tell me what he did. Knowing he's not very good at writing stuff down, tell me what Joseph Smith did. He, he hired a scribe. He was smart enough to say, hey, I'm not very good at writing stuff down, so would you write stuff down for me? He acknowledged his weakness. He acknowledged his weakness. And he hired a scribe. I'm not very good at this. Can you help me? Do you see why Joseph Smith succeeded and Oliver was excommunicated? Now, if you're, if you're going to win this battle, if you're going to defeat Satan, who's coming after your weakness and you don't even know what it is, he does. You're going to have to do something very scary. You're going to have to acknowledge that you have a weakness. And you're going to have to strengthen it. Now, may I suggest, if you are humble, everyone in your life is trying to point out your weakness. I have learned a little secret. Can I give you my secret? Let me illustrate. I was six feet tall in sixth grade. By ninth grade, I was six foot three and weighed 122 pounds. Six three, 122. Can you picture what I looked like? That was my childhood. Now, in all of those years, in all of the teasing, in all of those playgrounds, no one ever called me fat as a teaser. No one ever insulted me by calling me fat. Now, tell me why. Tell me why no one called me fat. You couldn't hurt my feelings by calling me fat because it was so obviously not true. So we all learned something. If you want to hurt someone, what do you do? You take something that, Ellie, that that's a little true. You take something that's a little true and you throw it at them. So if you're really humble, you will listen to what they're saying because they will tell you your weakness. Now, let me show you the greatness of Joseph Smith. Can I just astound you at how incredible this man was? Sure. 
I went one day to the prophet with a sister. She had a charge to make against one of the brethren for scandal. When her complaint had been heard, the prophet asked her if she was quite sure that what the brother had said of her was utterly untrue. She was quite sure that it was. Okay, do you get the understanding? Woman, someone spreads some rumor, comes to the prophet. Is it true? No, it's not true. Are you sure it's not true? I'm sure it's not true. Okay, then it won't hurt you. He told her to think no more about it, for it couldn't harm her. Remember, she thinks the rumor's not true. She was quite sure that it was not. He then told her to think no more about it, for it couldn't harm her. If untrue, it couldn't live, but the truth will survive. Still, she felt she should have some redress. Then he offered her his method of dealing with such cases for himself. When an enemy had told a scandalous story about him, which had often been done before he rendered judgment, he paused and let his mind run back to the time and place and setting of the story to see if he had not by some unguarded word or act laid the block on which the story was built. If he found that he had done so, he said that in his heart he then forgave his enemy and felt thankful that he had received a warning of a weakness that he had not known he possessed. That's how you think if you want to defeat Satan. Then he said to the sister that he would have her do the same, search her memory thoroughly and see if she had not herself unconsciously laid the foundation for the scandal that annoyed her. Is there any truth to the rumor? Hmm. Now what does she say? The sister thought deeply for a moment and then confessed that she believed that she had. She had laid the block upon which the scandal was built. Then the prophet told her that in her heart she should forgive that brother who had risked his own good name and her friendship to give her this clearer view of herself. The sister thanked her advisor and went away in peace. You see the antidote? If you're going to win the war against Satan, you need to know where he's coming. And he's coming where you're weak. And you need to know what is your weakness. If you're humble enough to ask, the Lord will tell you. Everyone will tell you because most people see it, but you. And if you'll listen, I'll never forget. I learned that such a painful way. I, I started teaching in a two-man seminary building, two-man. So during I, one year, while I was prepping, the other teacher was teaching. So I'm prepping, I'm in my office, but no one, can, no one knows I'm in my office. So a girl comes over from the high school to bring the announcements. A girl comes out of the other teacher's class and they have a conversation. They don't know I'm listening. But the one girl says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just getting a drink. Well, who do you have? I have so-and-so, the other teacher. <clears throat> and the girl from the office says, oh, I have Brother Dunford. And the girl getting the drink says, I hope I never get Brother Dunford. Now I'm sitting in my office going. <laughs> <laughs> now the girl who was in my class that came over from the office says, why? I think he's great. What's wrong with Brother Dunford? And she gives five reasons. <laughs> wow. One, two, three, four, five. Now I'll admit, sitting in my office, 
I thought to myself, no, 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 never, and no. You're wrong. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> All five of them. <laughs> and I vowed to change. And that girl eventually was in my class, and she and I became dearest of friends to this day because she helped me see a clearer version of myself. If you will listen, the Lord will tell you what your weakness is. If you don't want to hear it, don't worry. It's easy to brush aside. But if you're going to win the war against Satan, mark my words, he's coming to Noah. He's coming to the weakest city because that's where he thinks he can get in. If you have built up your city of Noah, you can defeat him. If you have not, that's where he enters. May we be wise enough to not come down a little. And may we be humble enough to acknowledge that God has given me a weakness. And if I listen, he'll tell me what it is. That's a painful lesson to learn, but very important to do so. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for joining us for Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This has been class number seven don't come down even a little. Would you ponder with someone you love or with the class or with me personally, the importance of staying on top of that mountain? What have you seen happens when we come down even a little? How are you going to fortify yourself to stay on top of that mountain and resist the temptation to come down even a little and bring your guards? <laughs>